Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast 38. Our mindset has always been to be open to opportunity and to keep our business model as flexible as possible. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers, and every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardage. And on today's show, we have Jordan Green of J&L Green Farm. Jordan and Laura Green started J&L Green Farm in 2009. On their farm, they raised grass-finished beef, pastured poultry, and forest-raised hogs, which they market directly to the consumer. However, before we talk to Jordan, can you do me a favor? Go to grazinggrass.com and sign up for our email list. We are busy working to improve the website and make it more useful for the community. And the email list is under construction as well. And we get those emails sent out weekly. I'm still trying to tweak them, but they'll be out soon. But enough about that. Let's talk to Jordan. Jordan, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're on here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Sure. So, um, like you said, my name is Jordan Green, and together with my wife, Laura, we started our farm, JL Green Farm, in 2009. Um, we're what we call a direct-to-retail farm, where we are, everything that we are producing is being sold directly to an end customer. So it's very different than a lot of other farms that are supplying into a commodity system in that we have a production side of the farm, but we also have a marketing sales and distribution side uh, as well. Very good. Before we really dive into deep on that, let's jump back to why you even started the farm in 2009. Well, in 2009, I had already decided long before that, that farming was something I wanted to do with my life. Um, kind of growing up, I, I grew up on a large uh, forest and lake preserve in upstate New York. And my parents were homeschool, home birth, home everything. So they had a big garden out back. And uh, so, you know, I kind of grew up working in the outdoors, having that, um, I guess, love of, of being outside as part of that growing up experience. And we moved to Virginia in 97 which is when my parents got into, I would say more of like the homesteading kind of scene, heard of Joel Salatin, you know, read his books. We went down and visited their farm. This was when Y2K was kind of looming on the horizon and, you know, the, the end of civilization as we knew it. So, you know, we were raising chickens, doing all that kind of stuff. And I ended up getting a job here in our local area, uh, working on a farm, which you know, was a good experience and I loved working with the horses and bailing hay and, and doing those kinds of things. But I also worked in their two commercial poultry houses that they had there. And that to me was an unpleasant experience and side of agriculture. Um, you know, is this commodified CAFO type of livestock production that, that we see the vast majority of our meats being produced from. So, you know, hopping from there, I got an opportunity to go to Polyface Farm in 2001 and two to do their intensive apprenticeship program that they had. And by that time I knew farming was something I wanted to um, you know, do as a career was something I was very passionate about. And it was a convergence of several 
things that I really enjoyed doing. And it was kind of the, the sum of the formulation of, of a lot of things that I enjoy. Um, but there was another thing that I kind of had in my, in my uh, back pocket that I also wanted to do, and that was to go to the Marine Corps. And so that was a bug that was just kind of planted in my mind at some point. And you know, I tried to join in 2001, a little bit before even 9-11. But at that point, uh, you know, I was homeschooled K through 12. And at that point, DOD was treating homeschoolers as the equivalent of high school dropouts. So it was very hard to get a contract and actually go to, um, to serve in the military. So I did the polyface thing first. 2003, DOD changed that policy to where homeschoolers were now considered tier one recruits. And so I was able to go in and get a decent contract. And so me and a buddy of mine, we went off to boot camp together in 2004 and um, did five years in the Marine Corps and kind of scratched that itch and got it out of my system and said, all right, now I'm ready to go start the farm and and uh, chase that thing for the next 20, 30, 40 years. I don't know. We'll see. Um, so, that, yeah, that was kind of my journey, journey into it. And thank you for your service. We greatly appreciate that. Oh, the, the joke I kind of make about it is, uh, you know, thank thank everyone for paying your taxes because it was one of the uh, one of the most uh, interesting and, and fun jobs I had, uh, and also at times the most frustrating job that you, you are stretched in so many different directions that it's a very foundational experience to jump into something else um, you know, with your life off of. So I'm, I'm very appreciative of the opportunity that was given to me by this country to serve in that way. Oh, yes. Yes. So you got out of the Marine Corps and did you start looking for a farm at that point? No, we had been formulating our, our plan to start our farm probably 18 months before I got out. Um, oh, yes. So I actually did some of the some of the work on building the business, even on my last uh, deployments. Um, cause we knew, you know, this was something, if you're going to stay in the military for more than one enlistment, you need to do a full 20, you, you might as well just make it a career. And I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do. So by the time I got out in uh, August of 2009, we already had a farm lined up for us to lease. You know, already had a, a concept of the operations that we were going to do and had some marketing lined up. And so we left and, you know, stepped, stepped right into operations here pretty shortly after getting home. So you decided when that uh, 2009 time approached, you were going to do direct to retail already. Yes. Yeah. That was what my background was in, um, you know, especially coming through Polyface's program. But even before that, we did some direct to retail of uh, goat cheese and chickens and eggs and things like that. So I already had a decent amount of experience for you know, someone at, the, at that level uh, at that point. And direct to retail was really the only path that we considered uh, as a viable outlet for us to build a business. Well, that makes sense. Yes. And you get the land. What's your first thing to do? Well, I mean, our first thing was to set up a, a shed for some pigs because that was the first operation we were really stepping into. Um, you know, shortly after that, we put up a hoop house and started brooding some egg laying uh, chickens and ducks because that was kind of our next thing. <clears throat> and we were leasing a 200 acre farm is what we started out on. And we started managing the, uh, the herd of cows that the owners had that were kind of just continuously grazing the farm. We started doing some rotational grazing with them. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of our first 
first steps. We certainly made some mistakes in, in starting out, but um, getting product to market was the focus of, of the first six months because that's where your cash flow comes from. And that was um, you know, the direction that we had to go as quickly as we could. Without cash flow, your business is dead. Very true. And when you, did you pick out the, the chickens and ducks and pigs with that idea in mind that they're short term and can get cash flow from them? Yeah, the, the thing with pigs is we had an opportunity to help another farm backfill an inventory shortage that they had going on. So we didn't even have to necessarily find a, a direct market for all of our product at the beginning. And that gave us some efficiency in the size of the groups that we were running that we could grow out 30 pigs in a group and we knew 20 of them we would sell right away to this other farm and you know 10 of them we could raise out you know we could uh, cut out for ourselves and have to take to the farmers markets and, and things like that um so it, yeah it gave us a good good way to get into an operation already at a little bit of an efficiency level which is another real crucial element for a startup farm is finding that one core element for your operation that you can scale out and build efficiency into as soon as you can after uh, after you get started. Oh, yes. That, that helped you with that having or working with that other farm. How did you find that other farm to work with? Well, I mean, the, the other farm, it's no secret. That was uh, Polyface Farm. So it was my alma mater that I had come through. And at that point, they had just picked up a contract with Chipotle to supply a couple locations with chopped pork for uh, carnitas. And they just basically had a shortfall on production that uh, you know it was a win-win for us and them because they knew oh, yes. that I was very familiar with their production model and that we were just going to copy the same thing that they were doing. Um, so they said, hey, you, know, you can grow out 20 pigs a month for us. That would be great and it would help us kind of get over the hump and they ended up taking you know that business back uh, a year or two later for themselves but it definitely helped us right out the gate to get some of that cash flow cash flow going you mentioned a while ago on, on raising the hogs raising some for polyface and some for yourself and you marketed you started marketing quickly at farmers markets yes yeah so when you're starting out you know the hardest challenge is getting people to know where that you're there and you know, having awareness. So in that regard, farmers markets are a fantastic way to get your face in front of a lot of other faces out in the community. Um, it's certainly not the most efficient sales model or even the most viable in a long-term setting, but for a startup operation, hey, if you wanna see a thousand, 2000 people in the morning and hone your, your marketing skills and your, your pitches on stuff, farmers market's a great place to start out so we got to the point where by year three or four, we were doing six different farmers markets a week just to get ourselves out there and, and get our name known in the, the foodie community. Um, and yeah, kind of get the, the word out there that we were here. And that's quite an undertaking doing that many farmers markets a week. It definitely is a full-time job. Uh, you know, some of them were twice, two different markets in the same day. You know, obviously Saturday's a big day, so we were going multiple different directions. Um, we had two on a Friday as well. So for us, Friday and Saturday were some pretty uh, pretty crazy scheduling days for us. I imagine so. 
at that point, was it still you and your wife and family doing it, or had you um, hired some staff at that time? Um, we, we had some staff rotate in and out in the early years. One of the things that we did was we toyed around with, a, you know, an apprenticeship slash internship program um, in the first couple of years, which we've actually moved away from and not had an active program for that in, um, in quite some time. But yeah, that was something that helped us out in the early years. Um, we didn't really start bringing on, I would say, full-time professional staff till maybe our fifth or sixth year of being in operation. And, and a lot of it was just Laura and I, we were working 16, 18 hours a day, a lot of days. Um, you know, we worked about our first two years without, without taking a break, just putting in the, the grind and, and the work to get this dream off the ground. And it is a grind and a lot of work to build that foundation and get started. So a lot of people find themselves in that. Certainly. What else, in addition to the farmer's market, were you doing for marketing? Well, it was kind of in the early days of social media. So we, we were certainly doing a little bit of social media marketing. Um, the key thing, though, is to move a farmer's market customer. If you're in the northern half of the United States, most markets close down in the winter. So if you can move those summer customers to a winter, uh, say like a buying club model or a home delivery model, that's where you can start collecting contacts and customers and start building an email list. That's really a, kind of the, the ultimate goal of any of your marketing is getting those people plugged into your uh, information stream that, that you're putting out there. And that was kind of our strategy with a lot of the summer markets is we would establish a customer base that we would have a solid, say, 20 people that were buying from us every week. And, you know, at the end of the season, we would just say, hey, we're going to keep bringing some product up here once a month. Um, you know, Sally over here is volunteering her driveway for the once a month, um, you know, buying club drop. And if you guys want to order from us, you know, initially in the early days, it was they would just text or email their order into us and you know, we've since moved that into an e-commerce uh, ordering system, but you, know, you, you do what you got to do in the in the early days to establish that steady presence uh, and product availability for your customers and uh, uh, cash flow for your business. And that was certainly our goal at any farmers markets we did was to bring that customer into the fold of, of our business. And when you started with your farmers markets, you had pork and, and chicken and duck. Were you were you selling um, processed chickens and processed ducks? Anything else? Yeah, so we had um, you know, buy-the-cut beef and pork pretty early on. Oh, okay. Um, chicken we added, I think, in our third year. So we started having whole chicken and then you know, doing cut-ups of that. Um, ducks were primarily for eggs. So we did a lot of duck eggs, a lot of chicken eggs. Um, and then we added turkey, I guess would be the last uh, last product that we that we added. Um, what was a real hit for us at a couple of the farmers markets was value added products. So we got to the point where our biggest Saturday morning market, we were taking, uh, you usually have a lot of surplus of sausage when you do pigs. So we were getting sausage made into sausage patties. And then when you have egg laying chickens, of course, you have little peewee eggs, you know, either from your pullets or just the random ones that your hens lay. And so we value added both of those things into a sausage, egg and cheese muffin. And, um, you know, 
kind of a good day for us, we would be selling about 400 of those things on a Saturday morning, um, you know, at four bucks a pop. This was back in you know, five, six years ago. So if we were making a couple thousand bucks just on value, adding a low, low end product, which, um, you know, is the beauty of a direct to retail thing. You can turn a low end product into a high end product, the closer you can move it towards ready to eat, you know, consumption right now uh, for for your clients. Uh, so that was a good lesson for us early on in the power of value add. Oh, yes. I, I have to think about the farmer's markets I go to. I would love for them to do a little bit more value added stuff. And I'm talking about me as a consumer going. I can see how that would be beneficial. I'm kind of curious about your duck eggs. Did they sell pretty good? They sold decently well, but the margin was not there. Um, you know, ducks are a, a particular animal, I would say, to to farm, uh, to raise. They're they're very, uh, of course, they love they love water. Um, they have really no aversion to being shocked by electric fences, so they're pretty hard to contain. <laughs> and uh, you know, to me, I call them the the ridiculous animal. Um, that you know, if you can think of something ridiculous, a large group of ducks will probably do it. And um, they don't lay in nesting boxes either. So every day is an Easter egg hunt of finding oh, yeah. where the ducks hid their eggs because they will bury them in the grass really well. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's very labor intensive to do duck eggs. And um, the scale really wasn't there. And so by the time we hit a natural break in, in how our business was operating, where we could walk away from ducks, um, you know, everyone was like, yes, I think we're ready to take a break from ducks. And, um, you know, that was five years ago and no one's missed them since. So oh, yeah. <laughs> that gives you an idea. <laughs> well, I, I find duck eggs interesting because there's a couple people at the place where I work. They always have some duck eggs for sale. And I've never, I mean, we've had a few ducks. Usually we have them for a little while and then we feed the coyotes with them. It, it just hasn't worked out well for us but i've never really considered um, duck eggs selling them because well from one my wife's not a big fan so i don't even have any to have any duck eggs for the house so i just think that's a little interesting it's something a little bit different but another niche that someone can be considering absolutely now i want to get to your operation and what you're doing there but i think this conversation about marketing is so important as um you know we had um, will harris from white oak pastures on a early episode and he was talking about you know the the three legs of um a farm production and then that that marketing one which i think so many people that's really good at production struggle with that marketing one and i say that i say even I say that because that's a struggle of mine. We do commodity. We just sell through a local sale barn uh, just because, well, the marketing's not the easiest for us. So I think other people suffer from that too. So I think that's really good information about marketing. Before we transition more to what you're doing on your operation, do you have a few more words on or thoughts on marketing to share? Well, you're absolutely right that it is not, um, it, you know, it's not the easy path to market all of your own products. And certainly 
the way that a lot of ag is set up right now is is fairly prohibitive uh, of you know your average farmers going out on their own and saying hey i want to market my own stuff um, you know virtually impossible to do with dairy products right now um you know very difficult to do with any of your um poultry products and you know still somewhat difficult to do with with red meats um, there's a huge bottleneck in processing right now to even find a facility that could cut and pack the product for you is quite a challenge for a lot of folks and you're having to drive a long distance and you know scheduling things out 12 18 months in the future um but then also you know a lot of a lot of farmers are in the business because they enjoy working with cows or they enjoy um, you know, crops more than they enjoy going out and beating the bush and trying to sell a product. Um, you know, people who enjoy doing that, they're in sales, um, you know, not not in farming. <laughs> so I think it also, it, it takes a healthy awareness of yourself and where your talents are as a producer that, you know, if you want to get into the direct to retail side of, of ag, uh, certainly the days of just putting out a sign and saying fresh beef here and having customers flock to you, um, you know, those days are over. Um, you know, you're, we're now competing with, um, you know, butcher box and, you know, pasture bird and, uh, you know, other, other businesses that ship product nationwide. So this is becoming a competitive space where if you don't have your marketing chops together, you will get chewed up. But, you know, my, my take on it is for, your average family farm, if you want to survive, there's really two ways you got to go. You got to go absolutely huge and be super savvy at playing the commodity system, or you got to figure out a way to shorten the gap between you and the end customer. You know, right now your average farmer is getting 17 cents on the dollar, and we've got to figure out a way to bring that other 83 cents back on the farm. So either if you, you know, know how to market and, and learn how to do it yourself, or bring that person in who, who knows how to do that. And, you know, fortunately for Laura and I, Laura is a very good marketer and salesperson. And that is her side of the business that, you know, she handles all of the direct to retail shipping, that, that whole segment of, of our operation is what she does. And she's fantastic at it. So um, I guess I got lucky. It sounds like you have a great relationship there. Um, works out really good with her having those strengths. Uh, it's certainly advantageous to have your spouse being on board with what you want to do. Um, I've really yet to come across in in my travels to come across a, a couple that is engaged in a farm that wants to do direct retail where they find success with um, without both spouses being 100% on board. If the dream and the vision is one spouse's and not the others, um, to me that that is really almost a prohibitive um, element towards building up building a farm, especially a direct to retail one. It's going to take both of you on board with the same vision and dream and, and pulling hard in the same direction. Yes, there is a lot of time and effort put into that, and it definitely helps if you're both pulling in the same direction. Let's transition, Jordan, to your your farm right now. What's it look like if we were to come visit? What would we see? 
if you came to our uh, what we call HQ, which is our, our headquarters farm or kind of the the hub of the wheel, um, it's a 200 acre farm that we lease and we've had to lease here for the last uh, 10 years. And we um, have 51 acres of grass here. The balance is woods. So we have a lot of cows here. Um, we have a lot of our pigs are operating here and all of our poultry operate on this farm. Um, in addition to this one, and this is where our storefront is, it's where we live. You know, it's where most of the employees come to every day to, to get going for the day. Um, in addition to that, we lease another about 120 acres in the community. Um, that's about 70, 80 acres of grass on, on those places. And uh, that's where we do a lot of our remote grazing with the cow herd. Uh, we make a little bit of hay on the, on the one place. And then in the last year, we have purchased a 167 acre farm. That's about 15 minutes away. And we call it a farm because of what we do there. But for most other people, they would probably just call it hunting, hunting land. Um, it's all woods. And that is where we run our sow operation uh, because you know, we run sows rotationally grazing them through the woods, kind of similar to how you would with oh, cattle, but you know, scaled down for a pig operation. And uh, it's a good piece of ground for, for sows and for pigs. And that's been our project for the last year and a half is getting that place developed and getting animals over there. Um, we're operating on about half of it right now with a little over 100 sows over there and, and loving it. So all told, you know, we're running about 450 to 500 acres of ground and we're spread out on multiple different locations, most of which we lease and one of them we own. Let's dive a little bit deeper into your pork operation. Just talking about your purchased land over there, you've got about 100 sows there. What's that look like? And how are you rotating them? How are they grouped together? Yeah, so we have about 230 sows right now total. Some are over on the, uh, the sow farm, and some of them are still over here on our headquarters farm. But... We backed our way into a farrowing operation pretty soon after we started because we had a shortage of quality piglets, which is a common gripe I hear uh, around. And, you know, we, we needed to address a quality issue and a quantity issue. And so that backed us into kind of farrowing our own pigs, you know, within about two years after starting, it was something that we were starting to look at needing to do. Um, and we found out that we weren't the only farm that had a, a piglet shortage. There was a lot of other farms that were also looking for piglets and seeing this as an opportunity in the market, you, you never want to turn away a good opportunity. We allowed that to kind of lead how we developed the farm. You know, it was an early uh, mindset of ours that we were going to follow opportunity. We're not going to try to ram a, a square peg in a round hole kind of thing and say, Hey, we are only going to produce chickens. It was, adapting a kind of a overall production model of, hey, this is how we're going to do different animals on the farm. And then we're just going to see which one the market really responds to. And the markets responded really well to pigs and, and to pork. And so that has become our, our centerpiece enterprise. So we took uh, you know my experience from Polyface and how they do pigs. Uh, you know, a book that was good reading early on is one called Dirt Hog. And um, you know, some other ones that are out there that kind of go over 
how pigs used to be raised, which you know was outdoors and they were on pasture and they were in the woods and, and not in these big confinement buildings. And from there, we really just started some trial and error of figuring out what kind of genetics work, what kind of management protocols work, um, how to train pigs properly to fence to where you know, we can keep groups of sows in with a single strand of fence, just like you would a group of cows. But it's, it's a training process that you have to put them through, you know, figuring out how to farrow and then figuring out how to farrow year round in cold weather and in hot weather and the different things you got to do to make all of that work. And, you know, that kind of brought us to where we are now, where we're probably one of the bigger farrowing operations uh, east of the Mississippi, I, I would wager. And we finish out a lot of the pigs for ourselves, but we also primarily supply piglets to a lot of other pasture-based farms on the East Coast. And um, it's a lot of what I do every day is, is working with and on that operation. Let's, let's unpack a couple things on that. Um, one, you mentioned the breeds and genetics. What kind of breeds did you start with? What do you have going? What are you finding? Yeah, that's a good question. So we started out primarily by looking at the pigs that we were buying and saying, all right, who's, whose pigs are the best for what we do? Because we were doing feeder to finish in the woods. And we just took the best females out of those groups and said, all right, we're starting with you guys. And so we really didn't go out and get registered stock anywhere. We just took the best of what was available to us locally and started our, our work from there. I think we got um, this one particular breeder that only had four sows. They, they weren't big at all, but they were good piglets. Um, I think we got her to save a boarling for us. And that's kind of what we started off with. So our foundation was um, Hampshire and Duroc. There was a little bit of Yorkshire in there. And we quickly bred the Yorkshire influence out. Uh, we found that a they don't do well in the sun obviously they sunburn really bad and b they just had some cranky kind of attitude genetics maybe it was specific to these yorks or, or i don't know but we kind of moved away from that and um we've operated largely a closed herd for the last 10 years we did bring in a little bit of hereford genetics a couple of years ago to experiment with so we brought in some hereford gilts and uh, so we have a little bit of that genetic influence in our herd now uh, but outside of that, we've just kept it closed, basically doing a line breeding program, weeding out bad genetics and selecting for the things we want, which is, you know, very low intervention on birthing for the sows, um, you know, large litters, good mothering instincts. And we want a 300 pound grow out at eight months of age. And outside of that, you know, we don't care if they're black, red, striped, polka dotted or, or whatever, because uh, it doesn't matter when the pork chops is on your is on your plate. <laughs> very true. Very true. On those, you talked about easy farrowing, large litters. What is your farrowing, farrowing operation look like? Are you are they farrowing on pasture? You putting them in crates? How's that going? Yeah, so we don't farrow in crates at all. Um, they are farrowing out on the pasture or in the woods. Now we do you know, take care of the sows when they are in what we call their farrowing window is when we put the boars in. Of course, we mark the calendar 115 days in the future. And when that group of sows, maybe I should have uh, put this in a little bit earlier that, you know, these 230 sows are all not running in one big gaggle. Uh, we have what we call sow sets, which is a homogenous and autonomous group of sows. Typically, it's about 18 to 22 sows that are in that group. And they are rotationally grazed on about an eight acre 
uh, what we would call lane, you know, running through the woods. So usually it's got a road going down the middle. It's an old logging trail. And that sow set is autonomous from every other sow set on the farm. You know, in, in the perfect world, they never even see each other. And so that gives us small scale control over what we do with breeding and, and the different sets that we have. But you know, we breed and farrow and wean on a, a monthly basis. So there's always something going on with the farrowing operation. But with a particular group, when they're about to farrow, uh, you know, nine months out of the year, we're just putting some junk round bales in uh, the paddock where they're going to be when they start farrowing. And so they'll tear those bales up to build their nests and you know, each one will kind of build its nest wherever she wants. We do have um, a position on our farm that it's called our farrowing nanny. And so that's a local lady that enjoys just working with birthing pigs, but her job is largely just to sit there and monitor them when they're birthing to make sure, you know, nothing bad happens. Um, you know, and if a piglet pops out and, you know, has a bunch of fluid on his face to wipe it off and, and get him over to the teeth. But that's the extent of the intervention that is acceptable to us. You know, occasionally we do have to pull piglets and do those things, but uh, we are selecting for sows that take care of their own business and they've done really well at, we've farrowed, uh, we don't use heat lamps. We've farrowed all the way down to 10 degrees below zero um, and, you know, had success doing that. And, you know, again, relearning a lot of probably what was very old uh, swine husbandry. Pigs have been obviously farrowing piglets for eons without human intervention. And our job is just to try to get her to retain more piglets from that litter. But pigs are very capable of, of farrowing in all types of weather conditions and they're, they're literally surviving. It's just our job to manage correctly, to breed correctly, and give the sow the, the tool she needs to be a successful mother. When, when you have these sow sets, are they all farrowing about the same time? No, they're all on offsetting schedules. So any particular month, we have one to two sets that are farrowing. I, and maybe I worded that wrong. Oh, the sow's inside of the set. Uh, yes. Yeah, so everything yeah, sows inside of a set are they all farrowing? Yes, everything in a sow set they do as a group. So when we breed, we put two boars in. We okay, run our, we run our boars in pairs. So you know, when, when we want to breed them, we put two boars in there, they'll be in there for a minimum of six weeks. Typically, everyone will farrow within about two to three weeks of each other, and we'll have a few outliers. Oh, um, that yeah. might happen later, but yes, everything operates right. around, around the group in a group function. So they breed together, they all farrow together. And typically we wean all of their pigs within about a two week window, um, as well. How many litters are you expecting your sow to, um, have each year? So we plan for two, um, kind of the industry standard is five litters in two years. So, you know, two and a half litters a year, but we let the piglets nurse a little bit longer. Uh, we give the sows a little bit of a break between litters. So for us, uh, we plan for them to farrow twice a year. How long do you leave them on the sow before you wean? Uh, we wean anywhere from seven to eight weeks. You know, obviously the sow that farrowed first, her piglets are going to be a little bit older when we go to, to wean. And, uh, you know, once right. they farrow later, it'll be a little bit younger. So we've kind of gone to a little bit of a hybrid model that when we wean, we're size selecting. So you know, we're trying to wean them at, say, 25 pounds, plus or minus a little bit. Um, and you know, we set up a weaning pen, which is away from the mothers. And we'll go in and you know, catch all of those bigger piglets will be what we do in the first couple of days. 
that maybe we'll come back four or five days later, catch a much bigger group of them, which is kind of the, the majority of what the piglets are. But we might let the bottom, you know, say 15 or 20 piglets stay with that group a few more weeks as they're kind of going through that that post farrowing recovery phase before we breed them again. And then we'll just come catch them and, you know, put them in another weaning pen. And those last 20, they've had it great because they've gone from having, you know, 150 other piglets <laughs> that they're having to compete with milk for. And now all of a sudden they're the only ones there left to nurse all those sows. So they, they fatten up pretty quick at the end. Oh, yeah, I imagine so. And when you move them, you get them weaned. Are you growing them out on that farm? Or once they're weaned, you move them somewhere else? So yeah, ones that we grow out will stay on our farm. Typically, our feeder pigs, we run on pastures. And our sows, we run in woods, which works pretty well um, you know, for just disturbance on the ground. And also, the um, you know, sows need bigger space. The woods is better suited for them. But the feeder pigs, we're running in um nets with an electrified wire inside so that's a lot easier to do on the pasture and it's a lot easier to manage things like filling their bulk feeders and things like that on the on the field so if, yeah if you come here you'll see feeder pigs on the pastures and sows with young piglets in the woods how often are you moving your um, pigs on pasture our feeder that groups... sounds like a children's book Pigs on pasture. Yeah, there you go. Book opportunity. Um, so our feeder pigs move every four to seven days on pasture. It depends on their age and how many are in the group. And then the sows in the woods, they move every uh, seven to eight days. And then you're, you're tart or you're shooting for 300 pounds at eight months? Yes. Are you hitting that target majority of the time or is it still a work in progress? Yeah, I would say that's our average. The The difficulty right now is we're having to schedule uh, pig slaughter dates 12 plus months out in the future. So we're, we're literally booking dates in for pigs that haven't even been farrowed yet. So you know, we might be have to, we might be obliged to send in pigs that are only 250 pounds, um, you know, live weight because that's when our dates are coming up. And so it is what it is. And, or we might have to send them in and they're 360 pounds and, and they're real chunky. Um, so that, that's really kind of the, the controlling factor on our slaughter size right now is a schedule that we're having to set up way, way in the future. Right. And I, I assume that's throughout uh, much of the country. I know processors around here uh, scheduling out is just crazy. Pretty much everyone I've talked to, that's that's what they're dealing with. Yep. In addition to your um, pigs, you, you have some poultry and you have beef cattle. Yeah, so we raised a little over 10,000 uh, broiler chickens this year, um, five, 600 turkeys, and then we graze anywhere from 60 to 70 cows uh, as well. And so a cow-calf operation on your cows? No, we actually only do a finishing operation. Um, we'll, oh, okay. Yeah, we basically have to prioritize the, the limited pasture that we have towards finishing um, in, in order to get anything close to the volume that, that we need. So I would love to have a cow-calf someday, but A, the economics of it really don't pencil out for the scale that we're at. And um, I'm still waiting for my ship to come in and you know someone to inherit me about 1,500 acres of grass around here. 
that that make me oh, a happy, yeah. that make me a happy camper in the the cow department. <laughs> right, it would. So you're buying um, feeder calves and growing them out um, to processing size. Yeah, we're we're doing a little bit of a, a hybrid model here, that because we're direct to retail, we can sell. Uh, say two cows worth of ground beef for every one of steak. So if we only bought feeder calves in and fed them out or, you know, finished them out on grass, we would actually be short on things like, uh, you know, your your standard roasts and and ground beef and maybe have a little bit of overage on the steak side. Uh, You know, most direct retail farms that do beef, you end up with an over demand on one side, either you are chronically out of steak or you're chronically out of ground beef. And the challenge is to always try to find a balance. And so, you know, I've been a, a fan of Bud Williams for a, a long time. Uh, I know his daughter, Tina, and her husband, Richard, and been to um, a couple of their schools. And I'm a big, big proponent of his, uh, his sell by model and that there's always an undervalued animal on the market and there's always an overvalued animal on the market. And systemically around here, at least the undervalued animal is the cull cow that you know, we're surrounded by cow calf operations and what's worthless to them is a cow that doesn't breed or, you know, uh, an older cow that's kind of hitting retirement age. And so yeah, I think it was about five, six years ago, started kicking around this idea of, hey, we're buying in five, 600 pound, um, you know, feeder calves every year and then having to graze them out for another 12, 18 months to hit a slaughter weight. We can buy a 1200 pound cull cow for the same money or less. And she's already put all that weight on, on somebody else's farm. So I don't have to worry about growing her out. I just have to finish her. And seeing how you know we were buying in calves already and finishing them out for 12 months the logic was well what's the difference if we buy an old cow and finish her out for 12 months we're adhering to the same production protocols that you know we that we are telling our customers and so we started experimenting around with going to local sales and then also with cow calf producers around us telling them hey if you got good condition old cows we'll pay you top We'll pay you top dollar for them on on the market, but we want to bring them back here. And it turned out to be incredibly successful for us that, you know, just gauging the local sales that I go through, maybe about 10 to 15 percent of the animals that are going through the pound sale is the kind of cow that we're looking for. You know, she's a thousand to twelve hundred pounds, you know, not not thin, but not super fat either. You know, she's obviously been working her, her, her whole life. Um, but still is in good condition. She's either just been cut out of the herd because she didn't breed last time, or a lot of times people just take a trail of the cows to the sale because they got to pay a bill or, or something like that. And so we put <laughs> together these groups of cull cows in the fall. We'll evaluate them for the first month. You know, anyone who looks like they're going to have an issue, we'll just take them back to the sale and get rid of them again you know, as fast as we can. And then we'll have this herd put together of, you know, 40 to 50 uh, old cows or, or cull cows. Some of them are, are younger ones that, that just didn't breed. And we will treat them like a finishing herd for a year. So they'll get moved every day on pasture. Um, you know, they're on our, our high quality um, 
you know, fescue, orchard grass, and clover pasture. We also drill in a lot of sorghum sedan grass. Um, you know, we have a good mineral protocol. We worm them before they come here. And we found these old cows, they'll put on two, 300 pounds of gain in a year. When you treat them like a finishing cow, instead of pushing them hard, like it's oh, a like yes. cow-calf operation. And what I really like is old cows really aren't in a big hurry to go anywhere either. Yeah, you know, they, they, they know the deal. They train pretty well to fence. And so they're a lot easier to manage than a yes. group of 60 to 70, 600 pound heifers. You know, that, that's like taking teenagers on a caffeine and sugar fueled, <laughs> you know, binge to the movie theater. So I'll take old cows any day. I, I love handling these old girls. And uh, we've actually found that about 40% of them will drop a calf while they're here, which to us is just a cherry on top that we can buy 40, 50 old cows in the fall. And the next fall, we're going to take 15 to 20 calves to the market that they gave us. So we're going to get a little a little bump of cash there and still get to harvest the old cow to uh, to help fill our freezer. So it's, it's been a real um, enjoyable you know, exercise and learning process of, A, solving a problem on our marketing side where we needed more ground beef and stew beef and kind of these basic beef, beef cuts but also to employ those techniques that Bud Williams taught about, hey, look for that undervalued animal at the sale. Yeah, it sounds like you've done a great job of identifying that undervalued animal in your market and how to increase her value. Absolutely, and it really only works with direct-to-retail. Um, you know, I understand if you're, you know, you're, if you're growing out or feeding back into the sale barn, it's probably not a production model that works very well for you. Uh, but for us, it really hit a, you unique problems that we had and uh, unique opportunities. And so if you come out to our farm, you're going to see a herd of old looking cows. <laughs> As we start to wrap up this session, I think we could, we could talk for quite a while longer. There's lots we did not even touch on, but uh, we're going to have to move on. So, couple things before we get to the overgrazing section one of them what what are some of the challenges you faced on your farm getting it started and getting it to the point where it is now hmm. yeah i mean there, there's a lot of lessons to learn along the way um yeah i'd say a continual challenge is a keeping yourself in the right mindset as an ownership element and as, as leaders of an operation, especially if you have employees that, um, you know, it, it is on you to develop yourself, not only as a producer, but as a leader of other people that, you know, staff and, and labor is a big, a big problem on a lot of farms. And I think many times, we like to sit around and complain about it and say, oh, there's no help out there. No one wants to farm when maybe it's more of an issue of you're just not a good person to work for. And so you know, it's always a challenge to keep keep your own ego in check and realize that you know, part of doing this and part of being a business owner is not just learning how to manage cows or, or move pigs, learning how to be a leader of people. And the people that are on your team are who is going to propel you forward to success. Um, you know, even if the team is just you, your spouse, and, and your couple kids, those are people that 
you're leading that are going to help you build towards your success if you're the kind of leader that they want to follow. And that's, so that's something that is always on my mind is there's a, you know, a phrase out there that a guy who's written several books and is a friend of mine, his name is Blake Babin. He says, there's no bad teams. There's only bad leaders. And so that's something that always is in the front of my mind is a good leader is going to have a good team because if there's a bad member on the team, they're going to get rid of that person. So, you know, a good leader is going to take care of the team. And if there are problems going on, it, it does come back to you as, as the leader. Um, you know, outside of that, other problems are, are solvable, really. Um, you know, capitalization problems, production problems, finding enough land, even things like processing problems, those are all solvable if you've got good leadership. And as a, as a leader, you're staying humble and keeping your ego in check. Those things can be overcome. Very good. I think you bring up some excellent points um, there, just talking about leadership. And, and I've heard that quote before that there's not bad teams, just bad leaders. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I paraphrased a little bit, so I didn't get it quite right. So as we look towards the future, where do you see Jay and Al Green Farm going? Man, I, I've got no idea. If I had a crystal ball, um, I, I'd be... I'd be a multimillionaire by now. <laughs> I would have had about $3 million worth of product in the uh, freezer for last spring and cash. <laughs> right, in. right. Um, you know, I don't know. Kind of our, our, our mindset has always been to be open to opportunity and to keep our business model as flexible as possible. One of the things I think that's really hurt the uh, agricultural community in the United States is the extreme rigidity of our production models that you know say you're running a, a big dairy well you pretty much can only do dairy because you probably have a lot of debt out to build that huge parlor that you're using the same in the poultry industry you've got a lot of debt out to build that poultry house and you're locked in to a very rigid production model where you can't change with the market because your hands are tied and our approach has been to have as much flexibility built into what we're doing as we possibly can um, you know, I would rather have an 80% solution from an infrastructure or production end, but it can be used for two different species than to have a 100% dialed in perfect production model or, or piece of gear or piece of infrastructure that can only be used for one. So that that's kind of our, our deal is, hey, we're going to stay flexible and react to what the market is because at the end of the day, we are in this business to make money, surprisingly. And, um, you know, that's something I think a lot of farmers need to maybe think about a little bit more is what are you in this business for? You know, of course, lifestyle is part of it. We enjoy eating our own product. You know, I certainly enjoy all of that, but I wouldn't be doing 16, 18 hours a day on it just for my own enjoyment. You got to you got to be able to have some money in this process and build some generational equity and wealth that you can uh, you know, do something with. And um, yeah. So our goal is to stay flexible and follow where opportunity is. Obviously, with inside of you know, what I would call an umbrella of ethics, you probably won't see us putting up any big confinement facilities here on the farm. But uh, we're, we're just looking for the best way that we can serve our community and you know steward the land that we're on and the animals. And every day, just be thankful that we're here to be able to do this because it is a lifestyle that a lot of people are not, not able to have. And I always want to keep myself reminded of that, that 
you know, I get to do this. This is something awesome to be able to pursue dreams that I've had since I was a teenager and uh, count myself very fortunate. Very good. And I think some of the things you point out right there about the flexibility and stuff is going to lead into our next section, our overgrazing section, where we take a deep dive into something you're doing on your farm, a practice, a philosophy or something, just so we get a better feel for it. And for today, I think we're going to talk about another business you have. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about uh, whatever you'd like, but sure, we can talk about, um, you're probably talking about farm building. Yes, yes. Which is uh, an idea that kind of uh, came up maybe seven years ago, was seeing that, you know, like it or not, information has gone digital. Everyone is on social media, you're on, you know, on YouTube, listening to podcasts like this one. And th this is the pioneering edge of information dissemination now. Um, you know, certainly there's still value in books and magazines and things, but when people are looking into researching something, they're going to look at YouTube more than likely. And I was seeing a lot of content out there for homesteads and farmsteads and, you know, small farms, which is, is great. Absolutely nothing against them. And then, you know, there was videos out there for, you know, mainline conventional agriculture because they've got a lot of money in their, you know, in their marketing departments and they make videos. But there really was a lack of content out there for, hey, these are, you know, this is how to produce a product on your farm at a scale that can make you a full-time income in a, in a direct to retail type of um, orientation. And, you know, again, coming at it from a business perspective and looking at, Hey, what's another way that we can value add to what we're doing and, you know, build a, build a market in a complimentary fashion. It's like, well, let's start doing some content on what we're doing. You know, this is how we're building these things at, at scale, whether it's with um, you know, pigs or beef or poultry or talking about things like leadership, like we you know already did. Um, you know, here's how, here, here's how the majority of, of what American farms used to be and what they could be again, this is what we're doing to try to trail break the way through these things. And not everyone has to reinvent the wheel and re relearn these um, traditions and skills that, that have been largely lost over the last say 50 years. And that's kind of what kicked it off was just <clears throat> putting out, Hey, here's what we're doing, seeing what the feedback from the market was. And it, it's been very positive that there's a lot of young people. There's a lot of veterans. There's a lot of, you know, farmers already in the business who are looking to transition out of the, the commodity model to do something different. And um, they're, they're hungry for real content for uh, people who are sharing of this. This is what it takes to actually make it in this business today. It's not all cute Instagram pictures. It's sometimes it's getting down and, and dirty in the mud and working late nights. And that's kind of been our goal is to be as authentic as as possible and show what the uh, the real hard work is the struggles but also the successes of it and um you know the fun times of it and that's you know led into kind of a consulting type of business um we do a couple of schools a year here on our farm that are more production and marketing oriented yeah and, and just run a big youtube channel and different uh, social media outlets and just seeing where this um seeing where this thing goes is we're kind of getting the you know, back to direct to retail pastured based farms into, you know, I would say that the next 
the, the next phase that we need to go through. Now, I think you mentioned there you, you offer a couple of schools each year. Can you tell us a little bit more about those schools? Sure. Um, so our, our big one that we do is every fall. It's usually the last week of September. And that is our Faro to Finish and Marketing School. So, you know, if you were to ask me what what is our centerpiece enterprise, we're going to say pigs every time. You know, we do cows. I love doing cows. We do chickens. You know, chickens are, are awesome. But pigs is really our, our bread and butter. And so we put this together, I think, uh, 2017 or 18 is when we did our first one. And, um, you know, again, it was just putting out there saying, hey, we're going to do a four day school on how to have a centerpiece pasture pig enterprise on your farm. We're gonna go from farrowing, show you how we do it, breaking down kind of the fundamentals behind it, um, you know, all the way through finish. We'll talk butchering, we'll, we'll talk carcass audits, um, you know, numbers, profitability, how to actually put prices on your stuff. And so I do the first two days of it. And then Laura does the second two days, which is all about marketing and customers and sales and distribution and, and uh, websites and all the stuff that that she handles and you know we found there's a good response for that that there's a decent amount of folks who are interested in farming but they want to make it a business and they actually want to make money at it and for us it's a fun week kind of to cap off our summer when we get into late september it's finally starting to cool down a little bit and when we have this school it's kind of when we let our hair down from the push of the summer and now we're we're into fall. So it's a lot of fun for us to do. It's a lot of work, but we look forward to it every year. I would assume it's uh, very energizing, very um, refreshing for you to to meet with these people and to share your knowledge with them and just get that energy fed back to you. I know for the just the podcast doing that, I always leave each episode excited and, and um, re-energized, refreshed, and ready. So I assume you get some of that from those schools. Yeah, we meet a lot of interesting folks, you know, from all over the country. We've had people from you know, all the way out west come, um, you know, up in the northeast, all the way into Florida. Um, you know, some from big farms that you would know all over the, the world or the country. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a fun time. You know, for me personally, I am dead by the end of it. Oh, I imagine so. so. I, I, you know, probably sleep 12 hours a night for the. <laughs> The next week afterwards but uh yeah it's it's a lot of fun very good jordan jordan we're going to wrap up the overgrazing section and move on to our famous four questions they're the same four questions we ask of all of our guests i blatantly stole that off the bigger pockets podcast our first question is what is your favorite grazing grass related book or website or resource um I mean, the, the one I recommend the most is probably Knowledge Rich Ranching by Alan Nation. Um, you know, I think that's a great book for anyone who's looking to get a start in the, the business of, of ranching, which, you know, here in the East Coast, we don't say ranching. It's, it's just all farming out here, whether you got cows or crops, it's, it's all farming. But that's a great one to, to start with. Yeah, excellent selection there. As we move to our second question. What's your favorite tool on your farm? Oh man, there's so many, uh, so many that I enjoy. <laughs> um, I mean, favorite tool is probably going to be a chainsaw. If 
you know, if I'm being 100% truthful, I know that has basically nothing to do with grazing and, and grass management, but I am at heart a chainsaw guy. Um, probably the most useful tool is definitely going to be um, solar fence energizers and fence testers. Like that, that is a revolutionary piece of technology for uh, pasture management. And and you got right there one of the tools that gets brought up occasionally, the energizers. And you brought up a tool that never gets brought up. That's right. A chainsaw. <laughs> um, I'm glad you enjoy a chainsaw. I've spent too much time with one, and they are not my favorite. Everyone's got to have a favorite. Oh, yeah, right. Our, our third question, what would you tell someone just getting started? Um, so what, what I'm telling people who are coming into the direct to retail side, which, you know, that's, that's where we're oriented is. So that's where the, a lot of questions are coming from is this crowd trying to break into the direct to retail. And what I tell them to start with is actually not farming. I tell them to start with marketing, that there's a lot of farms out there who are already producing in a production protocol that you probably want to do yourself at some point. Um, you know, you can find grass finished animals, you can find pastured pigs, you can find pastured chickens in any state. But if you are really wanting to start something, you've got to get the marketing side down first, because if you can't sell the product, then you're dead in the water. So my encouragement for new people is find a farm that's already doing it and tell them, hey, I want to buy one beef a month, three pigs, you know, 200 chickens, whatever it is. Align yourself with a farm that's already producing and has already figured out the production side because they'll give you a wholesale price list and you will know precisely what it's going to cost for you to get a beef or to get a pig or, or to get a chicken. And then it's very easy math from there to put what your margin above that needs to be, whatever processing has to happen, you know, different expenses and go out in the world and start selling. Because if you can't sell their stuff at a farmer's market, you're not going to be able to sell your stuff. And so if you can do that for say two years and build up a great customer list while you're out there, you know, you can pull out all the stops. You're, you're telling the customers your story of, Hey, it's our dream to start a farm right now. You know, we're getting product from these guys and we're selling it and we're trying to build up our customer list. And it's our, our plan to buy this farm over here or rent it, you know, in, in two years, if the market is, there and we really would love it if you guys would come on board and help us. I mean, you, there's a great story that you could sell with it. And so say you can build up, you know, three, $400,000 a year worth of sales doing it that way in two years, if you still really enjoy it and it's what you want to do, then the easier part will be finding that farm to buy or lease and start doing the stuff. You, know, you can start with doing the chickens first or the pigs or the cows and slowly wean off those farms that you're buying from wholesale and replace it with your own production. And guess what? You've never had a hiccup in your cash flow. And that's, that's the more, I would say the number one struggle for startup operations is getting steady and consistent cash flow, especially when you look at the, um, you know, expenses that come with livestock production. So start with marketing, start with sales, cut your teeth in there and then switch over to production afterwards. I think that's really excellent advice and something that maybe 
a little different than what we hear often. Um, but to be honest, you know, the marketing is where people are going to struggle more production. You can figure out, um, there's lots of resources out there, but yeah, if you find a, a farm that's producing what you, you can market out there and, and get out there and market and build that market, build that email list. You're so far ahead of the game. Yeah. Yeah. And the other business side of it is it allows you to rotate your capital faster. If you've got a hundred thousand dollars, say to start a business with, and you get into cow calf, well, it's 30 months out before you harvest that first beef. And so that's a, a 30 month capital rotation. Whereas if you're buying a finished beef every month or two every month from a guy who already knows what he's doing and has good quality beef coming out, well, you're rotating your capital every one to two months then instead of every 30 months. So it's a good way that you can build up whatever capital you're bringing in. You could probably come out the, the hind end of those two years with more money in the bank than, than what you started with. And so you, you even have even a, a bigger chunk to start your production. Oh, yes. Yeah. And Jordan, our last question, where can others find out more about you? Um, I mean, we're all up in the socials, so you can follow the farm anywhere. Just put in uh, JL Green Farm or JNL Green Farm, and you'll find us on Facebook uh, and Instagram primarily. Of course, you can check out the website for the farm. So it's jlgreenfarm.com. And then with Farm Builder, you know, if you want to find me there, that's, again, Facebook, Instagram, uh, YouTube, even on TikTok now, you know, just all, all over the place. <laughs> Um, you know, just put in farm builder and that, that'll pull us up. Um, you can check out that website at farmbuilder.us. Very good, Jordan. Jordan, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing. Uh, we did not make it as far into our questions as we wanted, but I think we, you shared lots of knowledge that'll really benefit our audience. All right, we'll come back around someday. Sounds like a plan. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. You can find the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we encourage you to share our post. We appreciate you sharing about our podcast. Are you a grass farmer? Would you be interested in sharing your story? Ooh, would you be interested in sharing your story, your journey with our listeners? Go to grazinggrass.com and click on the Be Our Guest link. Fill out the form and we'll be in touch. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, Please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts.
you can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And until next time, keep on grazing grass.